0: The royal family has long been a source of gossip, speculation and scandal, a national soap
1: opera. In court, Princess Anne only spoke to confirm her name and plead guilty to a charge of having an uncontrollable dog. I'd taken Beatrice to uh, a Pizza Express in Woking.
0: Why would you remember that so specifically?
1: Going to Pizza Express in Woking is an unusual thing for me to do.
0: Recently, attention has shifted from the family itself, they refer to themselves as the firm, to the people around them, the institution. It's a family business, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the family and then there's the people that are running the institution. Those are two separate things. Who really knows what's going on behind palace walls? A royal correspondent's best sources are often the unseen aides, advisors, and staff working away behind the scenes. So, who are these advisors? What do they really do? And what can they tell us, not just about how past stories unfolded, like Harry and Meghan's exit from the household, but the future of the royals? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Jenny Kleeman. Today, Courtiers, The Hidden Power Behind the Crown.
1: I'm Valentine Lowe. I'm the Royal Correspondent of the Times and author of Courtiers, The Hidden Power Behind the Crown. Tell
0: us about Courtiers. Why this book? Why write it now?
1: This all came out of the interview that Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, gave to Oprah Winfrey in March of 2021, in which she said something very pointed, talking about the royal family. She said, there's the family, and then there's the people that are running the institution those are two separate things. This was a very deliberate remark. What she was saying was that much of what led to her and Harry's departure from the working royal family was down to the people working behind the scenes, the faceless courtiers, the the men in grey suits, as Diana used to call them. The idea of the book sprang out of that. It was to answer the question, well, who are these people? What do they do, and are they as bad as Meghan says? And why did those people agree to speak with you? I think they wanted to put the record straight. They wanted to explain what these advisors do and how, for the large part, they're sort of public-spirited people trying to do a job of giving the best possible advice to their principals, the members of the royal family.
0: And was it difficult to get them to talk to you?
1: Uh, varying difficulties. Some were happy to talk because they felt they had something to say, some needed a little bit of persuading and some were stubbornly resistant.
0: Val, take us back to the 26th of October 2018. Tell us what happened in Sydney.
1: Right, we were on tour. Thank you for for the incredibly warm welcome and the chance to meet so many Aussies from all walks of life. And we gener- and we also generally couldn't think of a better place to announce uh, the, uh, the upcoming baby. Be it a boy or a girl. So. Duke and Duchess of Sussex, we're on a tour of Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, and Tonga. So we've arrived in Fiji, and look at this. One, two, three. <laughs> this is the biggest welcome we've seen so far. Thousands have been lining the streets. And we were coming back from Tonga to Sydney. There'd been a long flight, about five hours. And during that flight, we, the press, had been promised to chat with Harry and Meghan. This often happens on tours. Members of the Royal family would come to the back of the plane and have an informal off-the-record chat, not for reporting, but just to sort of shoot the breeze, say how things have been going. We were promised to chat with them. And they didn't come, and they didn't come, and they didn't come. And... Eventually, the plane landed and taxied to a halt. We thought, well, that's it. You know, we're not going to see Harry and Meghan after all. And then they came to the back of the plane. Harry was standing slightly in front of Meghan and she was kind of beaming benignly away. And he said, Thank you very much for coming, even though you weren't invited, which was an absolutely extraordinary thing to say. Not only was it really quite rude and offensive. It just wasn't true. We very specifically had been invited the press had been told, would you like to come on this tour? If so, you can credit here. Harry basically was behaving like a petulant teenager that day, someone who'd been forced by his parents to talk to the grown-ups against his will. Uh, it was um, a shocking display and showed yet again his Resentment of, of the media and also how unhappy he'd been on that tour because just a, a couple of days earlier we'd been in Fiji and um, sitting through a, a very long uh, welcome ceremony. <laughs> Harry and Meghan were on a stage on two sort of thrones and Meghan was staring straight ahead, smiling away, looking as though she was enjoying every second of it. Harry was just glowering off to the left where we, the media, were sitting and just staring daggers at us. He was absolutely furious with us for some reason, never being quite sure why. We were all aware that Harry was not a happy bunny on that tour.
0: Why does Harry have such disdain for the media?
1: Well, it's perfectly understandable because the memories of what happened to his mother, she, for much of her married life with Charles, she'd been pursued by the press. And, you know, on the night she died, she was being chased by the paparazzi in Paris. Uh, Now, whose fault that was is a different question. I think most people would argue she died because she's been driven too fast by a man who was drunk. But, you know, the, the media had a role. And I think it's incredibly understandable that Harry and indeed William should have a resentment towards the press. But the point is that William has dealt with it. I'm not saying he loves the media still, but he has reached an accommodation and he has professional and often pleasant exchanges with us. Harry has never really been able to get over it. Everyone's guilty for buying the newspapers, I guess, but um, hopefully no one actually believes what they read. Um, which I certainly don't. But yeah, of course of course, I read it. If there's a story and something's been written about me, I want to know um, what's being said. Um, but it, all it does is just upset me and anger me that people can get away with writing the stuff they do.
0: So his distrust for the media predates his relationship with Meghan. But tell us how things change when she comes on the scene.
1: There are two other things. One is his Distrust of the courtiers in the other households. So he then, at that point, was based at Kensington Palace. He really didn't have any time for the advisors who worked at Clarence House, his father's place, or at Buckingham Palace. He also had this obsession, this idea about his, he had a shelf life. Harry, you know, in, in many ways, Harry is a good soul. He, he wants to do good, he wants to use his position for the greater good of humanity. But he's also an impatient person, and he wants instant results. And sometimes that could be absolutely great. So when he invented the Invictus Games, which was a Paralympic-style event for injured servicemen and women, that got turned around incredibly quickly, basically from the inspiration when he saw something in America on a similar lines to when it happened in England it was just 12 months. And that was Harry's drive for instant results. But he had a feeling that he he had a limited shelf life. He was going to grow older, and as he grew older, the the same fate awaited him as often awaits members of the royal family. They become less relevant, they become less interesting, and he thought that by the time Prince George, his nephew, turned eighteen, uh, Harry would be over. No one would care what he had to say or do, and this led to a sense of frustration on his part. All that was there before Meghan turned up, but when Meghan turned up, it just got worse.
0: And what happened when Meghan turned up? I mean, did she understand the difference between celebrity and royalty? Were her expectations of her role out of kilter with reality?
1: I don't think she really understood about the royal family. I don't think that she really appreciated that it was an institution bigger than any individual. And there was a a famous remark that she made on the tour of Australia. She was taken aback by this idea you would go on walkabouts and these thousands of people would turn out and just want to shake your hand or just see you. She should really understand the kind of role of the royal family and people's relationship to the royal family. And at one point she said, I can't believe I'm not getting paid for this. Now it's it's an ambiguous remark because perhaps she wasn't suggesting literally I should be paid for this, but a certain surprise on her part, and yes, maybe it was a joke, but I think it does point to the fact that Meghan came from the film industry, television industry. She was interested in making money, and that was not going to be possible while working for the royal family. And what was she like to work for? I think she was very difficult to work for. As I wrote an exclusive for the Times in March 2021. It got to the point where one of our senior advisors, Jason Knauf, who did the communications, he wrote a memo to William's private secretary saying Meghan had, uh, was guilty of bullying members of staff. Did Meghan Markle bully
0: her staff, even making them cry? The blockbuster accusations come from the prestigious London Times newspaper on the eve of Meghan's controversial
1: interview with Oprah. I've spoken directly and indirectly to some of those people, and they were having a very difficult time. There was one instance when someone was due to see Meghan and feared that it would be a rather tense, tense meeting and talked about shaking with fear and being terrified of talking to her. That's obviously not a healthy working atmosphere. And there was another occasion when some member of staff trying to do something and Megan was making it quite clear in a meeting attended by other people that her efforts were not really appreciated by Megan. And Megan said to this person, listen, if there was literally anyone else I could ask to do this, believe me, I would, which is a crushing thing to say to someone uh, in front of others. Mm. Now, whether or not Megan was a bully, I can't pass judgment on that. I wasn't there. And the Buckingham Palace review that took place into the bullying was never published, so we don't know. But uh, I think she was certainly a tricky and demanding person to work for.
0: But Megan herself has said that she was unhappy during this time and that she made that known. And so I went to Human Resources and I said, I just really, I, I need help because in my old job, there was a union and they would protect me. And I remember this conversation like it was yesterday, because they said, my heart goes out to you because I see how bad it is, but there's nothing we can do to protect you because you're not a paid employee of the institution.
1: She spoke to HR, didn't she? Well, yes, she spoke to HR and didn't really get much satisfaction there.
0: When it comes to the bullying allegations against Meghan, the Sussexes have always denied them. A spokesman called them a calculated smear campaign based on misleading and harmful misinformation. He said the Duchess was saddened by the attack on her character, particularly as someone who has been the target of bullying herself. Val, when did this all begin to really break down? What was the point of no return for Harry and Meghan?
1: In a way it starts to go wrong around the Australia tour. When they came back from that there was quite clearly a lot of unhappiness behind the scenes. And around that time, in November of twenty eighteen, a story appears about Meghan allegedly reducing Kate to tears in a row about bridesmaids' dresses. So that prompts a series of stories in the media that Meghan doesn't like.
0: Not only did Meghan say she didn't make her then-future sister-in-law cry, Meghan says it was actually Kate who made her cry during a bridesmaid dress fitting before Meg's 2018 royal wedding. The reverse happened. And I don't say that to be disparaging to anyone because it was a really hard week of the wedding and she was upset about something, but she owned it and she apologized.
1: She She wanted... The story of Kate's tears, corrected, and the the palace wouldn't do that. They didn't think it was correct to fan the flames of basically a tabloid story. They didn't think it was a good idea to get involved in a possibly a row between two members of the royal family. So the relationship between her and the media team started to fall apart. January 2019 is a crucial point because that's when Meghan, as she told us in the Oprah interview, has suicidal.
0: The way you're describing this, it's like you were trapped and couldn't get help even though you're on the verge of suicide. That's what you are describing. That's what I'm hearing. Yes. And that would be an accurate interpretation. Yes. That's the
1: truth. That's the truth. She's, She's pregnant with Archie. She's feeling suicidal. She must have been in a bad place. Between that point and later that year, When it becomes apparent internally that they were thinking of getting out. We didn't know in the public, we didn't know in the media, but inside the clues were there that they wanted out. The palace didn't do anything about it. No one had a big meeting and said, listen, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex are clearly unhappy. We could be on, on on track for a major crisis within the royal family. We've got to sit down and work out what's going on. Why are they unhappy? What can we do about it? That just didn't happen, and I think that was a major failure by the palace.
0: So there was a, a breakdown in the relationship with the media. There was a breakdown in relationship between Harry and Meghan and their staff. How about Harry and his brother?
1: Well, yes, Harry and his brother had started to go wrong as well. Um, We've heard numerous times that this is all to do with the early days of the courtship between Harry and Meghan. And William essentially told him, shouldn't you be taking it easy with this girl? Don't rush into things. Well, as we all know, Harry likes to rush into things. And Harry was extremely offended by that remark. And I think that was the root of the rift between the two brothers.
0: And in terms of how they were speaking to each other, were they speaking to each other directly or were their staff
1: involved? They didn't speak to each other directly often enough. And this really emerged when in the autumn of 2019, so they'd just been on tour to South Africa. Um, Harry and Meghan had released this explosive statement announcing that she was suing the Mail on Sunday.
0: Handwritten notes to her father, extremely private correspondence that was then shared by Thomas Markle with the Mail on Sunday could call... Harry
1: issued a statement attacking the media in the most vituperative terms.
0: Yesterday, Prince Harry said there is a cost to this relentless propaganda, specifically when it is knowingly false and malicious. And though we have continued to put on a brave face, as so many as you can relate to, I cannot begin to describe how painful it has been.
1: At the same time, they've been helping with a documentary an ITV documentary fronted by Tom Bradby. As part of that documentary, Tom interviews uh, Megan and asks her if she's all right. I don't know what the impact on your physical and mental health of all the pressure that you clearly feel under. And she says...
0: Thank you for asking, because not many people have asked if I'm OK. But it's... Uh, it's a very real thing to be going through behind the scenes.
1: And the answer is... Would it be fair to say not really? Okay, since it's really been a struggle. Yes. It's a very affecting moment of the the film. And after the film was broadcast, William, he's concerned about his brother. I mean, yes, they've not been getting on, but he's still his brother. He still loves him and he's very concerned. And he gets in contact with him. He gets in contact with him on WhatsApp. And wants to come round, wants to come see him in Frogmore Cottage, just brother to brother. And Harry and Meghan initially say, um, sort of, yeah. But then Harry says, but hang on a minute, Um, who are you going to tell? And William says, well, I'm going to have to tell my private secretary, obviously, because I have to change my diary for that day. And Harry says to him, well, in that case, don't come. Because Harry is so concerned that this visit will leak, because he doesn't trust the people around William, that he doesn't want his brother to come and see him, and you know when I heard that that story uh, from a very good source, backed up by another source, I thought it was absolutely heartbreaking that the relationship mm-hmm. between those brothers should be so damaged by the fact the way they often don't communicate except through. Their officials uh, and the mistrust of those officials are so deep that Harry won't see William. Uh, it was, yeah, it broke my heart.
0: It's very sad, but it also shows, you know, what a strange life you have if you're born into the royal family.
1: Yes, very much so. And I remember talking to someone else about it who said, you know, they have these courtiers, uh, they often use them because they're there he said you know if you or i had them we might use them you know because it's easier to communicate with your brother or whoever uh, through them uh, rather than doing it directly yourself and it, it it distorts things and it can sow mistrust and suspicion and break my heart
0: coming up just how does someone go about becoming a royal advisor and who is the new king listening to? That's in just a moment. I'm Louise Callahan, a foreign correspondent for The Sunday Times. I work from the front line of international politics and war, bringing you stories from Ukraine to Syria and Yemen. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. us about these courtiers. How do you become one,
1: first of all? In the old days, if you were born into the right family, that usually helped. I mean, there were there were some dynasties of courtiers. There was a child called Lord Stamfordham, who had two descendants who became courtiers. One worked for the Queen and one worked for Prince Charles. And it helped if you went to Eton. I mean, just huge swathes of them uh, went to Eton. If you had been an officer in one of these smarter guards regiments, the Scots Guards, who usually did well, if you worked for the Foreign Office, that was often quite a good way in. Since then, they've they've tried to shake things up a bit. They try and seek out professionals, often from the world of government, but also from the commercial world. And sometimes... Mm. So these these are usually people usually people who you know, they're looking they're doing something they're looking for a new job um haven't really thought about what that new job could be but might be in public service and then they get a call from a headhunter saying um, would you be interested in working for the royal family and for the most part I've spoken to several uh, to whom this happened and they're absolutely astonished they they think to themselves i have Sorry, I've never considered for one moment working for the royal family, but also, of course, they're intrigued. Uh, mm. So they go along and they think about it, and often they have to take a pay cut. It doesn't pay that well. I mean, you can earn a lot more money in the private sector, uh, but they're intrigued. I think, well, actually, I could do some good, and um, yeah, let's do it. It's a very specific skill set you need, isn't it? Because you need to know how to
0: handle the press, but you also need to know protocol. You need to be a kind of confidant in a way. You need to navigate family relationships. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult recipe to get right, isn't it?
1: It's it's very difficult, and uh, they a lot of them approach it in different ways. Some emphasise the loyalty to the institution, and some. Are very keen that they are serving the individual member of the royal family that they work for and I spoke to one of these people uh, who was working for an unnamed member of the royal family who, who said that you know sometimes they they had to overrule them they had to overrule them by appealing to someone higher up the, the structure and they knew that this would go down very badly with the person they worked for. And on a couple of occasions, this person said um, to their colleagues, um, well, um, I might not be here in the morning. I wish me luck. <laughs> uh, they managed to survive, but you know, it, it, it could be quite tricky. I want to talk about what makes a good courtier, what makes a bad courtier. Let's begin with the good. I think... Sir Christopher Gite, now Lord Gite, I think he was an example of a good courtier for a couple of reasons. One is that he absolutely had the trust of the Queen, and when people spoke to him and he said something, they knew that that was what the Queen thought, either because Christopher knew literally what the Queen thought because she told him, or it was because... He was so in tune with her, he knew what she she would say. And that's that's incredibly important. The other reason why I think Christopher was good was he did a good job of moving the royal family on in the sense that, you know, the transition from the Queen to Charles was coming at some point, we obviously mm. didn't know when. He gradually shifted more and more onto Charles, and Christopher made that sort of a relatively seamless transition.
0: And also Prince Charles has been Very well advised,
1: hasn't he? If you think about the
0: huge turnaround in public opinion when it comes to his relationship with Camilla, it's quite remarkable.
1: Yes. There was a time when Camilla was allegedly the most hated woman in Britain. I take that with a slight pinch of salt. But in certain quarters, she was very, very unpopular. And he... Uh, Charles recruited someone called Mark Bolland who was sort of young comprehensively educated came from Middlesbrough and he was gay and he he was like a breath of fresh air and his job was to make Camilla acceptable and there was uh, a key moment it was Camilla's sisters Annabelle's birthday party and Charles and Camilla turned up together and the press, were informed about this. And I, I remember being there outside huge banks of photographers all waiting to see this moment when Charles and Camilla were finally sort of out officially together in public. Introducing Camilla to the public was all masterminded by Mark Bollan. He absolutely applied himself to that with vigour and did a very good job. And what about the bad? When have courtiers got it wrong? I think Charles, there was a time when his office was quite badly managed, it was very chaotic, and he thought that what we needed was a little bit of military discipline. So they recruited someone called Major General Sir Christopher Airy, who was formerly in charge of the Household Division, and he was an absolute disaster. Charles at that time was very much into the environment, the charitable stuff, and it just wasn't. Christopher Airy's world at all. He wasn't interested in it, he didn't like it, he didn't know how to handle it. There'd be all these environmental people hanging around Charles, and charitable people. Uh, and they'd, they'd talk a language that Airy just didn't understand. I, uh, mm. As one of his contemporaries put it, Christopher would not have known one end of a biodiversity strategy from another. And why should he? He was a military man. So poor old Christopher was given the heave-ho. And what
0: about when when Courtier's advice has been wrong or hasn't been taken on board? For example, I mean, what was the backdrop to, to Prince Andrew's Newsnight interview? Who was telling him to do it or not to do
1: it? Andrew was was in a fix at the time. The Jeffrey Epstein allegations had resurfaced again. His reputation was being Trashed on a daily basis. He was in an absolute pickle. And the person advising him was his private secretary, Amanda Thursk, who was a very, very bright woman, very hardworking, had no time for sort of palace flummery. She really wasn't interested in the royal world. She just was going to work for Andrew and serve him to the best of her ability. And, and in many ways, she did. Amanda Thursk, for all her cleverness, had a blind spot about the media. And a couple of years earlier, he had done an interview with the Sunday Times, which was an absolute car crash of an interview. It was an object lesson on how not to do it. He was not a master of his brief. He came across as a complete fool. And she, it seems, just didn't learn the lesson of that, that you shouldn't really put him in front of a camera. And if you do put him in front of a camera, you should make sure that he's briefed and trained up to within an inch of his life. And that just didn't happen with Newsnight. They made several basic errors in Newsnight. Uh, One was the failure to say anything expressing sympathy for the young girls who'd suffered at Epstein's hands. And the other was Mm. some of the ludicrous things uh, that Andrew said that became such a laughing stock there's a slight problem with 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 the sweating um because uh, i i have a peculiar medical condition which is that i don't sweat um or i didn't sweat at the time anyone with any PR now would have spotted those in the in the rehearsals if they'd done rehearsals mm-hmm. and said um actually sir Maybe we'll skip the sweating thing, shall we? I'm not sure it'll play very well with the general public. But they they didn't. And yeah, he got bad advice, I'm afraid, and paid the price.
0: We now have a new monarch. We have a king. And we have a king whose opinions are known to us in a way that we never knew the queen's opinions. So... Tell
1: us who the king is listening to
0: at the moment. What kind of advice will he be
1: getting? Above all, the person that he'll be listening to is Sir Clive Alderton. He's been his private secretary for some years. He's he's very long-standing. Clive is very clever. Colleagues have described him as a man who plays three-dimensional chess. He thinks of all the angles and he is hyper-loyal to Charles. Sometimes other households have complained that hyper-loyal to Charles at the expense of them, but he knows how to deal with Charles and Camilla. Camilla likes him a lot. One of the tricks that Clive has got, as well as his strategic brain, is the ability to make them both laugh, because in any relationship you can have moments of tension and the ability to diffuse them with laughter is actually very valuable.
0: Charles is facing some difficult issues, questions he needs to answer, like how to deal with Harry and Meghan, what
1: to do with Prince Andrew. Where does he stand on those issues? Prince Andrew is over in terms of official uh, working life as a member of the royal family. There's no way back for him. Charles is quite clear that it's just too damaging to the reputation of the royal family. It's what Charles believed before, and the only chink that Andrew had to work on before was his mother's love and understanding for him. She's now gone. His only real ally has gone. He has to find another way of of living his life. Whether he has the application or the imagination or the humility to do that, we'll have to see. As for Harry and Meghan, you know, Harry is his much loved son, but in terms of being a working member of the royal family, I think. Charles would also be clear on that. You can't be half in or or half out. Charles would dearly love for the family rift to be repaired. I think that'll be a long and difficult process. Um, It was interesting watching everyone around the time of the Queen's funeral, but there was clearly no rapprochement between the Sussexes and the rest of the family, but at least everyone behaved pretty well. and One can only hope that They can build on that slowly, but it's going to be uh, a long, slow process.
0: Val, yours is not the only much-anticipated royal book. There is another book due out soon, Harry's book. What are the courtiers worried about that might be in that book?
1: They and everyone within the royal family are worried that Harry will have more to say. that. Particularly worried what he might have to say about Queen Camilla. They're worried of what he might have to say about his upbringing, about his father, about his brother, his relationship with the courtiers. We've heard reports that he's had second thoughts about some bits of it. Hard to know the truth of that, but I think they're they're kind of bracing themselves. and Harry just has to think to himself, to what extent do I want to blow up further my relationship with my family?
0: Doesn't his career now, his income, Depend on continually having these revelations?
1: Well, for his sake, I hope not. Um, I think people are going to tire of these things eventually, I would have thought. He had this structure, didn't he? He had this structure through which he could contribute. It was called the Royal Family. And now he's outside that structure. And he has to find a way of contributing to public life that does not involve the Royal Family. And that might be tricky, but I don't think it's impossible. I wish him luck because he is someone who's got something to offer, but it can't involve continually griping and moaning about his family and an institution of which he's no longer part.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, Jenny Cleeman, and my guest, Times Royal Correspondent Valentine Lowe. Val's book, Courtiers, The Hidden Power Behind the Crown, is out now. The producers were Oliver Adamson and Olivia Case, the executive producer today was James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. See you again soon.